I don't know if you saw in the news about 10 days ago or so, amongst the headlines were this headline of a single lottery ticket wins $1,350,000,000. This was in the headlines about 10 years, 10, 10 years ago, about 10 days ago. Uh, it, it was purchased here at this gas station market in Lebanon. I've spent some time in New Hampshire the last four years, and that's how they say it there, uh, Lebanon, Maine. Some woman or man, we don't know who, walked into this place and bought a uh, lottery ticket. This picture, you can tell uh, by the gas price uh, numbers here, was taken a while ago. Can I get an amen to that? Um, so this is an older picture of the location where someone very recently bought this lottery ticket and won. Uh, their chances of, of winning, a, a person's chances of winning, uh, one in 302.6 million were the chances of winning that lottery ticket. Now, one of the things I thought about was um, where are we getting, or where is the government getting, 1.35 billion dollars to give away. Where, where, where is this coming from? This is astonishing. Americans spend more on lotto tickets than movies, video games, music, sporting events, and books combined. So that's how we get to $1.35 billion winner for some man or woman who bought this ticket. Um, there's more to this story. How still does this come about? Uh, I'm going to share a little bit. How, how, how does this come about that this is so popular and so common? And there's a little more to the story, I think. Um, this part you may be familiar with. The lowest income households in the U.S. on average spend $412 a year on lotto tickets, four times the amount of those in the highest income groups. 40% of Americans cannot come up with $400 in an emergency, which is to say those buying $400 in lottery tickets are by and large the same people who say they couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency. Now, it is very easy to think if, you, if what was just on the screen resonates with you to think in a judgmental way about this, and there's maybe something there that could be an understatement, but there's also something may be missing to why this is happening. Uh, why uh, we spend, as Americans, so much on this. So this is the perspective. This is a perspective of, let's say somebody who's going to be here, um, or maybe here today, but this place is going to be filled with people on Wednesday night who don't have a home. 
Some of them live in their car, but most of them don't even have a car. So what I'm trying to say is, if you're living in a car and you desire to live in a home, there's a little different perspective about buying a lottery ticket, if that's where you are at. Here's a perspective from that perspective. Buying a lottery ticket is the only time in our lives we can hold a tangible dream of getting the good stuff that you already have and take for granted. We are paying for a dream. And you may not understand that because you are already living a dream. You have a home. That's why we buy more tickets than you do. What they are buying is hope. They're buying hope. That hope lasts from the moment they buy the lottery ticket till the moment they lose the lottery. So then they buy another lottery ticket and they have hope until they lose. And then they buy another lottery ticket. And this is how we have a $1.35 billion payout to someone recently. So you might think a sermon is coming now about stewardship and money, which it isn't. It could be, but it's not. That's not what's coming. In our passage today, which Helen has just read, one of the key things in this passage is risk. Risk. David and his men are taking an enormous risk. Today's sermon, in large part, has to do with risk, with gospel risk. Whenever we read the Old Testament, we need to connect it with the New Testament. You and I are not kings. I don't think anyone here is the general of an army. We we are not in the context that David was in. And yet, David is taking a risk for the mission that God has given him in today's passage. And we, you and I, as Christ followers, have been given a mission. And I want to suggest that very few of us are taking massive risks for the sake of the gospel. In other words, another way to put it is, you know, I've, I haven't had anyone in my office who their problem is they have taken so many risks for sharing the gospel or living the gospel out that they've lost all their money or that they've been so persecuted and so abused, maybe even just verbally, that they can barely go forward anymore because they've taken so much risk. That is not a problem that we encounter. So today's sermon, in today's text, really has to do with risk. Risk and reward play a role in everyday decision-making. Every time a person makes a decision, there is a potential risk and reward associated with it. For example, the decision to try a new restaurant for dinner may have the potential reward of a delicious meal, but also carries the risk of food poisoning or disappointment. It is important to weigh 
the potential risks and rewards before making a decision to decide if the potential reward outweighs the potential risk. Today's text and today's sermon is in large part about risk-taking for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, for being the witnesses that he has called his followers to be. So what I want to do right now, we have very short text today, 1 through 6. I want to go through 1 Samuel 23, 1 through 6, and then we will apply, look at four implications of this passage. So hopefully you have your Bibles open or your devices open, and we're back to the text where Helen read from us just a few moments ago. Let's begin at 23 and verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines, save Calah. So just a little background here, if you're visiting or you haven't been going, David is a fugitive at this point. He is on the run. Saul, who has become the bad guy, the Lord's anointing is off of Saul, the spirit is away from Saul, he is trying to kill David, he's in danger. David hears about his people, this is appropriate on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, his people, when it says the Philistines are fighting against, that means some of them are dying in battle at the hand of the Philistines. If you're not familiar with the Philistines, they're kind of like the United States in the sense they are the superpower of the world. You should not take the decision lightly to go to battle with the superpower of the world. Japan thought, hey, maybe we should go and bomb. World War II, 1941. It's not usually a good idea to take on the superpower. So David hears the superpower, the Philistines are taking out my people what should I do? And, and look at this. It's interesting. Back on verse 1, it says, not only are they fighting against Kalah, they are looting the threshing floors. Now, some commentaries had to help me out to see this. What's going on here? The threshing floors. Jump down, if you will, to verse 5, or listen to verse 5. It says, uh, the, at the end there, the Philistines carried off their livestock. So why are livestock mentioned? So they're in a foreign land. The Philistines are in Israel here. And why do they have their livestock? So I think if we connect that verse 5 with verse 1, we, we get the answer. These guys are so powerful, they have decided to go where grain is stored for the Israelites. We're going to take our livestock there and graze them. <laughs> is that audacious? That's what they were doing. So we're grazing our livestock inside of your railies, is what we're doing. And simultaneously, we're wiping out your military. David hears about this, and he cares about human life, and he cares about his people who are small and weak in number compared to the Philistines. They don't have the tanks. They don't have the artillery. Should I go? And the Lord says, go. The Lord is saying, take this risk. Go and do this. This is what God is saying to David in verse 2. And so 
he and his men, we're going to see, they go to Kela, which is just south. And I made this big yellow circle here with the small skill levels I have here. South and west of Jerusalem is, is where um, he went. They're, they're going to uh, go there to do this because the Lord said, yes, David prayed to the Lord. And although David is being hunted by Saul, he saves Kelah, he and his men, from the hands of the Philistines. So how does he get there? Well, he prayed. It says, verse 2, he inquired of the Lord. And I think that's referring to him personally praying. They would often go to the priest to make decisions, and they would had certain tools and practices that they used to see, God, what do you want us to do here? But the priesthood has just been destroyed, minus one of them. And so it seems here David has gone before the Lord in prayer, and God has said, go and do this. Let's finish up our passage here, come back to the text, verse 3. So David hears the Lord say, go, attack the Philistines and save Kalah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. They're afraid because Saul and Saul's uh, men, in particular Dog the Edomite and others, are, are after David. So here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Calah against the Philistine forces? Like, this doesn't sound like a good battle plan. This sounds like waking a sleeping giant. And we should stay away from this battle because we will likely lose it. This is too much risk, is what his men are saying. Verse 4, so how does David respond? So once again, David inquired of the Lord. So I think he feels the weight of what he is about to do. And, and this is a tremendous risk. And so he goes before the Lord again, and he prays, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kela, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kalah. This military uh, band, they fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. That's why their livestock's there, is they're looting the storage areas for grain in Israel. He, David and his men, inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kalah, who were under oppression from this superpower. And then verse 6, in my Bible's in parentheses, which I think helps us understand what's going on here. This is like an editorial comment from the author of 1 Samuel, who says, Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod. This is what they would often use to discern God's will. He brought it down with him when he had fled to David at Kalos. So now the priesthood that has been slaughtered at Nob, uh, Jerusalem has yet to become the, the center uh, of worship. Now the priest has, has joined David after this. And we've also learned, if you were here last week or a couple weeks ago, um, why the Lord, through his prophet Gad, sent David to Judah. So let me just read it. Back in 22.5, the prophet Gad has said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. So David was in a safe place outside of Israel, outside of Judah. Don't stay there. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. So David was nearby Kalah because God wanted him to go and rescue the people of Kalah. That's why he sent him away from the stronghold into a place of danger. 
So one more thing on this text I want us to see that's really important. It's in verse 4. Now David was a skilled warrior. David was courageous. He had a variety of gifts. But the reason that David was successful with the mission is because, the answer is in verse 4, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. The I there refers to God, and it is emphatic. It is I myself am going to give the Philistines into your hand. And so I want you to to get a a grasp of of the grammar here, uh, of of what's being emphasized, how God is so central in, in dealing with the risk here. I'm going to give it to you. You don't need to be afraid. So here's my attempt at explaining some grammar. I know we have some Spanish speakers here today. And if I were um, a dad and I'm speaking Spanish to a bunch of children, including my own son, and they're being really loud, I might say to them, Cayete. And like children often do, they just keep going along and they keep making noise. But there's one child in particular who is making a ton of noise among all of these children. And I want to single that child out. Now, in Spanish, the, the pronoun you is inside of this verb or at the end of the verb. This is just a common expression that we might, you know, translate a certain way that I, I don't want to practice saying, but another way would be be quiet. Be quiet. But then, if I'm wanting to identify this one particular child... Among this group, I might say, tu caete, to that one child who's making all the noise. So even though the pronoun is already there in the verb, we've written it separately and emphasized, you are the one who is leading this cohort of noisy children, and I'm identifying you. That is the same grammatical thing we have going on in verse 4. God is at the center of David's risk assessment about whether he should go to Keilah or not. Because God is saying, I, myself, me, I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. And so this is why you should go. So, what does this have to do with you and me? And this is where we connect our passage today with the New Testament and with the mission that God has given to you and me. The mission that God has given to every Christ follower is to make disciples. Now that may not be what you think about, but that is the mission that God has given to you. He's given it to me. He hasn't just given it to missionaries or pastors. He's given it to every Christ follower to make disciples. What does that mean? That means that you and I are called to be witnesses for Jesus and for the gospel. It doesn't mean only evangelism, but it includes that. Sharing the gospel with people who don't know him. But making disciples also means growing up and making strong those who follow Jesus. So it's both of these things. That is our mission. We're not generals. We're not kings. We're not... Uh, leaders of, of men who are, who are defending a city, that, that's not who we are. We are Christ followers, 
And God calls us in the everyday stuff of life, at school, at work, in your family, with your neighbors, to be a witness. Now, in case you didn't receive that from the Lord, if you are a Christ follower, he, he said it twice, two really important times. The end of Matthew's gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus gives what we refer to as the Great Commission, where he says, go and make disciples. And just like here in, in verse 4, where I is emphasized, I am going to give the Philistines in your hand, I'm going to be with you. Jesus says at the Great Commission, I will be with you until the very end of the age. I'm going to be with you in making disciples. I'm not going to leave you. This is your mission. We do it in all kinds of different ways, but our mission is to be a witness to Jesus and to the gospel. So I said he said it twice. You know, what you say right before you, you depart is, is important and is a way of emphasizing things. So he says it there after the resurrection at the end of Matthew's gospel and then again in Acts. Look on the screen with me, Acts chapter 1. He's about to ascend to heaven. What is the last thing that he says? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be, you plural, you the church, you the, the apostles and disciples who were there as well as all of the generations subsequent to that including to 2023 right here in the foothills. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, this is where it started, and then moving out in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, even places like the United States and Hawaii and China and Ireland and Mexico, everywhere. This is your mission, to be my witnesses. The good news is just like in 1 Samuel 23, God promises to be with us he said at the end, the Spirit there he gave us. So he is with us. God the Spirit is with us. And Jesus himself said, I will be with you even till the end of the age. So it's been a long time since he's been here, but I am still with you to accomplish this mission. So what I'm trying to say today is that it is a very good thing to do to take the risk of being a witness for Jesus Christ in whatever that looks like in the everyday stuff of life that you're in as you go to the store, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you interact with neighbors. Wherever God takes you, he wants you to be his witness. Now let's talk for a moment. Let's, let's be real about the risk that we're talking about. We're, we are not risking life you are not going to die or I am not going to have to come. I have never had to go to the jail in Placerville or in Auburn to visit someone for sharing the gospel. How about an amen? That's, that's where we live. You're not going to be in jail. You're not, your life is not at risk. So we're talking about relational risk, really. We're talking about emotional risk. And so in these last few minutes, before we close, I want to speak and, and, and kind of open, put before us what the risks might be that we would overcome 
because God is with us in our witness, which is the mission, according to the New Testament, of every Christ follower, to be a disciple maker or to be a witness to Jesus, both strengthening those who know him and bringing the good news of the gospel that Christ died for sinners and calls you to repent of your selfish and sinful ways and to surrender your life to him, to communicate that to the world, and then also to build up and strengthen believers. This is what it means to make disciples. So what might we encounter out there where we would say, this is too risky and I'm not going to do that. I want to expose that some of these things that I've encountered and maybe you've encountered or maybe have been in your thoughts about this. So here, so here we go. Very briefly, I have four things. So number one, you might encounter someone saying or thinking, your Christianity is a crutch. Uh, I actually encountered this recently from someone. They didn't use these exact words. But I was talking with someone about Jesus, about living the Christian life. This is someone who has fallen away from the church. And this, uh, fallen away from Christ, who has turned away from Christ, turned away from the church. And this person says to me, you know, what you have is good for you. And then he, he used this phrase, what you have is an intellectual construct. He's saying religion in general and Christianity in particular is, a, is a, a construct in your mind, Mike, to help you live life. And he's trying to be very polite, but he's basically saying, I don't need that. A lot of people do, but I don't. And so this person didn't become a Christian at that moment. This person... This is how I responded to that person. I'm on my feet thinking. I say, yes, Christianity is an intellectual construct in my mind. It is. But it is rooted, that intellectual construct, that spiritual construct, that thought of what Christianity is in my mind, is rooted in history, in a person who lived Jesus and who died and who evidence shows, rose from the dead on the third day. So yes, it is an intellectual construct, but it is true. It is a true construct. And it is beautiful and glorious, our God. So this is the kind of risk we might encounter. Now let me just pause here too and say, unlike David's mission... Uh, I've, never, I've never had God speak to me like in a sentence, like, go attack the Philistines and save Kayla. I've never had the equivalent of that, go talk to Jim and share the gospel with him. I've never had that. So I'm getting my mission from the words of Scripture. God could do that. I believe he could tell me, hey, Mike, I want you to do X or put in your name, Sue. I want you to go do X. I think God is capable of doing that. I, who, who am I to say what God is God is capable of doing what God would ever like to do. But what, in my experience, he speaks to me through his word. And his word, unlike David here, where David has guaranteed him, this is what I'm going to do, what God has said to me through his word is, I will be with you. He hasn't told me that he's going to make this person a Christian, or if it's someone who's a Christian already who's just struggling in living a foolish life and I'm trying to strengthen them, 
uh, if that's what I'm praying that God would use me to do that, God doesn't guarantee, he's never guaranteed to me I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. In fact, the parable of the soils, if we just take that literally, there's four different types of people or four different types of soils. The soils represent a person's heart and only one of them accepts the truth, the seed of the gospel, and multiplies a hundredfold. So my reading is of the New Testament is I'm often actually not going to be successful, but what is true and what is similar to 1 Samuel 23 is that God is with me and he gets glory when I witness for him even when things don't go in the way that I want. Have you ever been there? You engage with someone and things do not go the way that you want, that they are not becoming a strong disciple. So what I'm talking about right now, and I said I would do it quickly, and I didn't do it quickly on the first one, so I'm going to move more quickly now. What I'm talking about is connecting 1 Samuel 23 with our mission of being a witness for the gospel, and I'm dealing with the emotional or relational risks that you and I take in a society that increasingly looks at Christianity as a liability, not as an asset, as something false, not as something true. Looks at Christianity as something to move away from rather than something to embrace. So there is emotional and relational risk as we wait, witness for him. So this is what I'm doing. And I'm going to move more quickly. Say, say, help him, Lord. Help him. Okay, here we go. So let's move quickly. So a second thing might be that you might encounter where you're taking risk is they would say, well, your Christianity is exclusive. It's exclusive. And they might not say this, but what the, the cardinal doctrine or the major philosophy of our world, of our state in particular, is you can believe and do whatever you want as long as you don't tell someone else that their view or their idea is false. Like that's the only rule, that's the only thing you can't do. So there's relational risk because the people that you're talking to, particularly if they're outside the church, they may say, your Christianity is exclusive and I don't want to have anything to do with that. And there's a sense in which absolutely Christianity is exclusive. Look with me at what Jesus says in John 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So it is only through Jesus that we find life, that we find out who we are, that we find out how to live rightly. And so we have to say to that person, yes, Christianity is exclusive. But I want to add something there because I think there is a misunderstanding. There's a misunderstanding out there that we are hucksters, that we're like a, a what are they called, multi-level marketing company? That that's what we're like. And and we're trying to sell you so that you come to this building and give money so I can get a Tesla. That's what we're about. I think some people think that. Or some other agenda. That's what we're about. So in one sense, yes, Christianity is exclusive. But in another sense, Christianity is wide open. There are a, a whole bunch of, of great churches in the foothills that you could be a part of. So we're, we're, not, we're not like that that's not what we are. But yes, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he is the only way. But it is rooted in history. It's a mental construct, but it's a true mental construct. It is exclusive, but it is not sociologically exclusive or, or ecclesiologically 
exclusive, meaning you don't have to be a part of this church. There are many good churches in the foothills and in our area. How about an amen? We're going to, Lord willing, gathered with two of them on, the, on Good Friday. So we're not exclusive in that icky sort of way uh, that, that they might be thinking. So we need to show them that, but also be true that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Okay, I'm moving faster now. Number three, your Christianity is full of evil people or bad people. Maybe they wouldn't go all the way to evil. Maybe they're not going to the Crusades and saying, you know what, I, I'm not sure I want to be a part of, uh, and I've, I've, I've encountered this recently, but I've encountered this like, hey, Mike, do you, do you know what the church stood for in this certain time period and what slaughter they did? Yeah, I do. And that was sin, and that was wrong. And those were not Jesus' disciples. Those were people using Jesus' name in a horrific way. More commonly than, say, the Crusades, is we may encounter people who know someone who was very bold in talking about Jesus, but their life was an absolute mess and has been an anti-witness. So we have to simply acknowledge that and make our boast not in you or me or this person or that believer, but our boast is in Jesus and in the cross. And we are praying for a church that would less and less be an anti-witness to the gospel and more and more of a church that is a witness, that we care for the poor, that we love our neighbors, that we consider others more important than ourselves. A final thing you might encounter uh, is, and there are many more, these are just four, your Christianity has been rejected. Your Christianity is more or less gone if they've traveled the world and been to Europe. It's numerically just about gone there. And it's on the decline here in the U.S. And especially, I suggest, in California. Studies have shown that the percentage of Americans identifying as Christian has been decreasing, while the number of Americans who identify as non-religious has been increasing. The Pew Research Center, for example, has reported that the percentage of Americans who identify as Christian has dropped from roughly 78% in 2007 to around 65% in 2019. So if that's the statistic in 2019 in America, I would suggest in California, anecdotally, that that percentage is far less than 65% in our state. Additionally, the percentage of Americans who identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular has risen from around 16% in 2007 to around 26% in 2019. The numbers of people embracing Jesus are in no way an indicator of his truth, of his beauty, of his grace, of what he did in history, of the reality that he is coming back in the future. So we can simply acknowledge our diminishing role. The church of Jesus has had a massively diminishing role in our lifetimes. It used to be, this is off the manuscript, but I'll, we'll finish up with this. It used to be the major leader who crossed denominational and church boundaries. His first name was Billy. His last name was... He prayed with 
and led on a personal basis. Liberal Democratic and conservative Republican presidents. Can you imagine that happening today? We're in a different world today. I'm, our spirit should not be, we need to go back to that. Our spirit should be, God, help me to be on mission with the gospel. There are risks. We are not in the world of the 1950s. And Christianity in the United States is increasingly being rejected by young people. We should acknowledge that. We should pray for this to change. And most importantly, you and I need to believe that Jesus is with us. I am with you always to the end of the age. No matter what is happening in the future, I don't know if it's revival or decline in our country or our state, but he is with you. And he wants you to take the emotional and relational risk to be a witness. The emphasis in our text here of 1 Samuel 23 is that David and eventually his skeptical men are on board with this risk-taking mission because God is with them. And God has promised to be with me and promised to be with you as we live on mission. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have promised by your Son and your Spirit to be with us. Lord, we love you. And I pray that even right now that some of us would be thinking of individuals for whom we need to either strengthen who are believers and have wandered or who need to see and hear the gospel through each of us in the various places we go. Lord, help us to take risks. Help us to know that you are with us and help us to live in light of your word. We pray in Jesus' name.